For those of you that don't know me, I'm Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas. And I was delighted when John Holbrook, one of our speakers, suggested that we do this debate because it's obviously a key issue. It's a very tense issue. Now, you might have noticed in the brochure that there's due to have been five speakers here and there are three. Sadly, two of the people who are speaking um, have colds and aren't here or are not well. They are the women who were joining this panel. I'm now saying for the record, because it annoys me, that we work very hard to make sure that we have, um, of course, lots of different diverse panels. And it's really annoying because I know that when the film of this goes out, somebody will go, oh, battle of ideas, all men, where are the women? Well, two of them were here, but they're not here because they've got colds. Right. It's a shame because it also slightly skews the balance as well. So I'm going to rely on the audience to be lively, interventionist, ask lots of questions. This is an incredibly important discussion because internationally it's causing huge tensions, the issue of borders, of immigration, and you'll know that. Also for myself personally, I have argued for many years for open borders to not be frightened in any way of having mass immigration. But I also, for those of you who don't know, argued for, passionately for, Brexit. And lots of people have told me that that is a contradiction. And I know that there are tensions in what I argued, and I am unresolved in relation to lots of this question. So I would ask you all to be open-minded, because it's one of these issues where people like to think that the other side are idiots. And both sides think that the other sides are idiots and can't see the obvious. I would like to ask you to suspend being on a side and let's try and get to grips with this key issue and work out what it all means today in 2016. So I'm now going to introduce the panel in the order in which they are going to speak. First up, we're going to hear from Nick Cater, who's the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre in Australia, and he's a columnist for The Australian he moved to Australia in 1989, spent 24 years at News Corp Australia, and is the author of The Lucky Culture, which is one of Boris Johnson's favourite books. So we're not quite sure what to make of that in terms of what side he's on, but that's who Nick is, and we're delighted to have him here. Then we will be hearing from Kenan Malik, who is a writer, lecturer, broadcaster, regular speaker at the Battle of Ideas and at events over the years, he is one of the foremost thinkers, I think, in the history of ideas in this country, the author of the fantastic The Quest for the Moral Compass, A Global History of Ethics, which if you haven't read, you need to, the author of From Fatwa to Jihad, The Rushdie Affair and Its Legacy, Strange Fruit, Why Both Sides Were Wrong in the Race Debate, Man, Beast and Zombie and the Meaning of Race. You will know him if you listen to Radio 4 because he's been a presenter on analysis, often is, panellist on The Moral Maze, he writes a column for the NYT and much more. We're delighted to have him here. And then finally, we've got John Holbrook, who's a producer of this session. As I say, it was his idea. John is a barrister, a regular contributor to Spiked on various legal and political issues, a lawyer who argues for fewer laws and fewer lawyers and more politics, which makes him a novelty. He argues that the asylum convention should be torn up, just to give you a taster, and wrote a fantastic piece in Newsweek in relation to this debate that I've had so many rows over you wouldn't believe. So that'll indicate to you that this is not a settled uh, question. Nick, why don't you kick us off, please? Uh, well, thank you, Claire. And I, I thought the most useful thing is if, if I offer you a bit of an Australian perspective on this because, you know, I think it's quite different to the approach that's being taken elsewhere in the world. First of all, though, I, I think we have to say that it's no surprise that uh, Western countries, developed countries, are struggling with this issue uh, because, after all, the era of, of mass migration and, and the acceptance of people from sort of quite different cultures is relatively new. Since World War II, uh, America's had more than 40 million immigrants, Europe 50 million, uh, Canada 7 million, Australia's had 6.6 .6 uh, which is million, which is more than a quarter of the population. It's a peak that they haven't seen since the gold rushes of the 19th century. Large-scale uh, migration by people of cultural, linguistic and, and religious backgrounds uh, markedly different from those of the host country then is a relatively new phenomenon and liberal 
Western societies are still learning. Uh, adjusting to diversity, I think, is probably one of the most confronting challenges of our time. Uh, no country has the perfect solution to this. Each, each succeeds and fails in its own different way. Uh, but I believe uh, strongly that, uh, unlike in the release, recent Olympic Games, Australia has done better than most in this. Uh, uh, and here's the evidence. Here's the evidence for that statement. Proportionally, Australia's immigration population now is 26%. 26% of the country were population were born outside of Australia. Uh, that's more than twice as large as Germany's, which is 12.9%. It may be a little bit higher now. I think these, these figures are pre the, the most recent uh, wave. Uh, Great Britain was at 12.4%, uh, and France was a third the size of Australia, 8.5%. Yet, when uh, you ask Europeans whether the level of immigration is too high, typically between two-thirds and three-quarters say, yes, immigration is too high. In Australia, you can ask the same question, and it's barely a third say it's too, too high. Two-thirds of Australians uh, say that the level of migration is either right or too low. So there you are. Uh, twice the level of migration in Australia, half the level of anxiety. How do we cope for this uh, rather happy situation? Well, I think if we've achieved it through the policy that's been accused of being tough and inhuman and something that shames the nation. I happen to disagree. Uh, that policy was best articulated by John Howard, our former Prime Minister, who said in 2001, we will be compassionate, we will save lives, we will care for people, but we will decide, and nobody else, who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Australia, it may surprise you to learn, has the largest official, I stress the word official, uh, per capita humanitarian migration program in the world. Uh, it, it varies, I mean, depending on, on the level, but we, we wrestle with Canada over this, but at the moment it is the highest. You can check the UNHCR's website, which will show you that. Uh, we've done it, though, with tough border policies. Self-selected refugees, that's those who arrive uh, largely by boat, are strongly discouraged. Now, it's clear from the studies that humanitarian migrants uh, present the biggest challenge uh, to an inclusive society. The evidence in Britain, France, Germany, the Netherlands, and Australia is clear. Those who arrive as refugees are less successful than other migrants in building better lives. Uh, in Australia, uh, the humanitarian category migrants, those who arrived by boat, this is between 2008 and 2013, when in 2008 the Labor government uh, slackened off the border control policy. It, it, it stopped the policy of, of compulsory detention, and they thought that was a fair thing to do. The result was a massive, massive spike in the number arriving by boat. Uh, something like 50,000 in the space of uh, little over six years, less than that, five years. Uh, and it's a very dangerous journey to make by boat to Australia, as it is across the Mediterranean, of course, a longer journey. Uh, something like 1,200 uh, migrants uh, died in that process. Uh, so that was, the, that was this gap when we, when we opened the borders, if you like. Now, the, of those people who came, 24% of the men 60%, 7% of the women had never been in paid employment. 33% of the men, 44% of the women had never spoken English, never. Uh, and 23%, 17% uh, uh, of the men were illiterate in their own language. Now, unsurprisingly, they struggled to find a job. Uh, they struggled to access government services, even to make small talk to their neighbours. They are far more likely to feel excluded, to be unemployed, unattached, uh, and feel hostile to the nation that gave them shelter, the migrants who arrived under other circumstances. Uh, and here's the point. I think for all our self-serving virtue signalling about being an inclusive country, about welcoming them all, we are letting people down if they are not allowed to build a new life or unable to build a new life. Uh, we offer Australia, uh, you know, if, 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 so long as people are unemployed, uh, struggling on the fringes uh, of urban communities, that communities that are in themselves on the fringes, they are denied the, the, the opportunity to build a better lives for themselves and their families. Uh, this is what Australia until recently got 
right, I think, since the arrival of the convicts in, in 1788, arguably before with the wave of uh, Aboriginal migration thousands of years before that, Australia specialised in redemptive migration. It's not just a place where you go to shelter, it's a place where you have the opportunity of hope to build a better life. Everyone who migrates gets a fair go, that's the principle at least, and, and generally I think people get it. Uh, I think the images that we saw of this sort of anguished people crossing Europe's uh, broken borders last year served as a, re a reminder that disorderly migration uh, serves no one's interests. Uh, the uncontrolled arrival of millions of people uh, simply strains uh, the, the uh, facilities, strains the services and makes it very difficult. So I believe that our, our, uh, the, the right approach, the only fair approach really, is to signal that you will select those people who come and you will select uh, the people who you know will do best, those who will thrive, those who will have an opportunity, those who will have hope. Uh, in the end, I think our points-based system over the years has operated as a de facto character test. Those who come, uh, come because it's difficult, they want to work, they want to be part of the country. Uh, and I think our real, our real moral responsibility here is to offer not just shelter, uh, but hope. Uh, and I believe that that's what, an, what we would call an orderly migration programme does offer. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Claire. Um, the default position in a discussion such as this is that immigration controls are the norm and that those advocating freedom of movement have to justify what is often seen as an outlandish position. I want to turn that argument on its head. Restrictions on freedom of movement are more than simply policy options. They are coercive acts of the state, and when I say coercive acts of the state, I don't mean not simply the inconvenience of border guard checking your passport, but the coercion of military patrols firing at migrants, of detention camps that imprison tens of thousands in the most brutal conditions, of deals such as the EU's with Turkey and Sudan or Australia's with Papua New Guinea and Nauru in which it pays millions in return for those countries imprisoning all those deemed to be travelling to Europe or to Australia. That's the reality of border control today. And those advocating such coercion, not those opposing it, have to make a moral and political case for it. You can't simply say, I want controls, but only the nice bits. And that, I'm afraid, is, I think is what Nick has talked about. He is, when he's talked about strongly discouraging refugees, what it means is that they're locked up in really brutal detention centres on Papua New Guinea and Nauru, not on Australian soil, but off Australia to try and get rid of them. We'll probably discuss it later, but the points system, for instance, is a fraud. Just 20% of Australian migrants come by the point system 10% of the Australian workforce actually are temporary workers because of the failure of the point system. So we need, we need to get this in, 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 in perspective. So what are the arguments against freedom of movement? They fall into three broad categories. That it undermines sovereignty, that it defies democracy, and that it has disastrous practical consequences. Let's look at each of these briefly. Sovereignty demands that a nation be able to make its border policy. It doesn't define what that policy should be. Consider Spain. When Spain joined the EU in 1986, it had an open border with North Africa, which worked very well. A condition for EU accession was that that border was closed. In other words, the sovereign nation had an open border. The closure of the border was imposed by EU rules. Freedom of movement in itself is not an infringement of sovereignty. What the critics are confusing is the right to control borders with a duty to enforce controls. Taking back control, to use a current phrase, is not the same as restricting movement. 
The second argument is that open borders are undemocratic because there's no mandate for such a policy. It's true that liberal immigration policies can only be enforced through winning public support, not in spite of opposition to it. But this argument is not an argument against freedom of movement. It's an argument for winning a democratic mandate for such a policy. And that would be true whatever the policy we're talking about. The third argument about consequences is about consequences that open borders would allow the whole world to walk in, and in particular, criminals and terrorists to do so. But remember that until recently, open borders were the norm. Britain had an open border to the, to the Commonwealth until 1962. America had an open border to Mexico for most of the 20th century. Spain, as I said, had an open border to North Africa. In none of these cases did the whole world walk in. They worked very well. The borders were eventually closed, not because of migration pressure, but because of political pressures driven by fear of migration. Fear, not reality, was the fundamental problem. Nor does freedom of movement mean that nations cannot check or stop terrorists or, or criminals from entering. What it means is that there are no arbitrary controls based on categories such as nationality or wealth or class. And we can turn the question of consequences on its head. The most grotesque aspect, it seems to me, of European or Australian policy is the insistence that dealing with migrants and refugees should be an issue primarily for poor countries. So Europe is quite happy for Turkey or Sudan or Eritrea or whoever to deal with the question of migrants so long as it doesn't have to deal with itself. Push it away. Let the poor countries deal with it. But suppose that every country took the attitude taken by Britain or Australia or the EU. What then would be the consequences? Well, the consequences would be mass detentions, mass deportations on a global scale, and effectively walling up people from poor countries into their own lands, which is another way of saying what EU policy is at the moment. And it's already happening. Kenya, for instance, is deporting tens of thousands of Somalis from camps back to Somalia, um, citing EU policy as reason for doing so. It's building a 144-mile wall as well to stop them coming. Again, citing EU policy uh, as a reason. Similarly, Pakistan with Afghan refugees. Um, similar cases in India, Turkey, elsewhere. It seems to me that none of the arguments against freedom of movement stack up. What drives hostility to freedom of movement is fear. The fear does not create a, a world of greater sovereignty or democracy, but of walls and of walled-in people. Every nation, its own fortress Europe. Is that really what we want? The argument for free movement and open borders um, comes really as an older argument and also as a new style argument. The older argument I think you can best describe as a libertarian argument. It's the argument that the market knows best and by this argument people are treated in exactly the same way as capital goods and services. And you can see how this argument has played out quite strongly over the years in the European Union, where even now they talk very much so the case now. They talk about the four freedoms. That is the four freedoms of those four things I've just mentioned. And the essential argument that has underpinned this libertarian idea is the notion that the free market knows best. The idea that if you open borders to these four things, then capital will go where it can best be deployed. Similarly, people will move to where they can best be deployed. So if there is a labour shortage, people will move to where they are needed, and so on and so forth. It, 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 it seems to me, though, that this is not a progressive argument. I don't find it persuasive at all. I don't find it persuasive for two reasons, both narrow and more general. The, my narrow objection to this support for 
free movement is that it doesn't really engage with reality. And the reality of opening borders, not just within Europe, but more generally, is undoubtedly that on the host country, wages are depressed. It is moreover the case that people should not be seen in the same way that capital is seen, because people are not merely economic actors, they are actually political actors and should be seen as such. And you cannot deny that people from different cultures have different ideas uh, and different backgrounds which do not change overnight. And obviously this is a problem which is greatly magnified by our current celebration of diversity and difference. Um, but even without that problematic political culture which celebrates difference, uh, I do believe that there would always be a problem uh, of assimilation that would take time to deal with. Um, so that's my narrow objection to this free movement narrative. But I also have a much broader uh, objection to it as well, and that is that libertarians always avoid political arguments. I do not find the libertarian <coughs> argument persuasive at all, because the libertarian is essentially saying, I do not want to get involved in politics. I want to leave everything to the market. And that's why libertarians are actually, usually, fairly hostile to democracy. Because what is the point of democracy if you are not going to have political controls over capital goods, services, and people? Uh, politics is very much about how you regulate the movement of those things. And that is uh, essential to a properly functioning democracy. So I have that strong objection to the libertarian ideal. But that, as I say, is very much the old-style argument for free movement, which is not an argument you hear ventilated very much these days. In fact, the people who are now promoting free movement, which I think is now better described as no borders, because that tends to be um, the focus of people's objections, um, the, the no borders narrative today is a <coughs> narrative which is driven by people who undoubtedly see themselves not as being on the right, but has been on the left. And yet, they share many of the problems which I've identified with the libertarian arguments of old, which are more associated with the right. So they have a hostility towards the very idea of politics. And I think you can see that very clearly with the no borders narrative, which is always about getting people to react at an emotional level. Show me the pictures of these desperate children we must open up our borders and our hearts to them. That is the level of engagement that the no borders narrative gives us. And it is not an argument which is intended to engage with your intellect. It is an argument which is intended to engage with your emotions. So it is a denial of people as political actors, people who can think and understand <coughs> what's going on. So there is very much that... Um, hostility towards politics. And uh, that's why, for example, someone like Lily Allen going to the Calais jungle and shedding tears becomes uh, so persuasive to this, to this whole idea. But it goes a bit further than that, because there is a rather pernicious idea at the moment that if you raise so much as a question mark over immigration, then you are somehow morally unworthy. You are backward. You are xenophobic. You are quite probably racist. Uh, at the Plaid Cymru conference today, Leanne Wood has been saying, we must not open a can of worms, as she put it. We must realize this is a dangerous situation. There are a lot of racists around. And you hear this time and time again from anyone who has the audacity to suggest that immigration should be curtailed. So again, it is an attempt to put, insofar as you're allowed to have political debate, it's an attempt to put a, a, a constraining box around it so that the argument, if it happens at all, happens on a very narrowly constrained terrain. And finally, I think that the modern uh, argument in favour of no borders shares with the libertarian argument of old a distrust for democracy. Because actually, if you do believe uh, 
in, in raising these questions as political expressions, then you're gonna, if you're going to have a properly functioning democracy, you have to enable people to say what they want to say. You have to have free expression. There has to be a free and unfettered exchange of ideas. And yet this attempt to control the narrative around immigration is really an attempt to deny people from properly uh, engaging in democracy. And just finally, I think what really sums up the problematic discourse which is associated with no borders is the way in which the argument has never been won. I mean, I know Kennan says you must, you must always win the argument. People who are in favor of free borders always say you must win the argument. They never actually present the argument because they're so busy saying you must have the argument. But it's always an argument without content. The reason why it's always an argument without content is because people know they can't win the argument. So it has always been um, something which has been achieved by changing the law and usually changing the law so as to take it out of the hands of ordinary people. That is exactly what has happened now, where you have international, supranational instruments that govern our borders. The Refugee Convention is the most obvious example, but there's also the EU treaties, um, and there's also the European Convention of Human Rights. These are three international legal treaties that prevent people from having any control over their borders. And that's happened deliberately because the people who have wanted to attack borders have known they can't do it through democratic consent. They can only do it by capturing these legal institutions. Just very quick answers, panel, when I ask you this. So, Nick, could you, you just come back on Kennan's question about, you know, the, the well, specifically as a go on the, you know, the quotas that doesn't work sort of thing. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard all these arguments before, of course. I've only got to go on a panel show in Australia and I get exactly the same arguments, possibly not quite as rapidly as Kenan put them, to be honest, because I think most of the consensus in Australia has clearly changed in the last five years. There was a specific incident where a, 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 a boat carrying uh, refugees from uh, Indonesia was, was thrust on rocks on Christmas Island in, in full view of the cameras and it was such a horrifying incident that people began to change their view on what a humanitarian policy represented. Now, in Australia's case, what I'm arguing is, is, is a compassionate case, but I think a pragmatically compassionate case. Uh, now, in Australia's case, and I think here too, uh, the majority of, of people who, who, who are now coming from asylum seekers are coming through uh, people smugglers, right? Uh, and in Australia's case, they're paying 10,000 US dollars or more to get there. So. If you, if, you, if you say, well, we'll open our borders to those people, what are you doing? Because plainly we can't take the, you know, all 12 million or whatever you estimate the, the number of displaced people is. We can't take them all. We have to distinguish. If, if, we, if we select those who come by boat, then what we're saying is if you've got 10,000 US dollars in your pocket and you're willing to pay a criminal smuggling ring in Indonesia, then you'll get in. You'll get priority over people who are applying through the UNHCR process. Uh, elsewhere. I think what we're saying now is we, we, we've actually increased our humanitarian intake. As I say, and, and check the UNHC website, Ken, we are the highest per capita uh, humanitarian intake in the world. But we do it through the UNHCR and we do it through selecting people ourselves rather than allowing to self-select and to, to self-select by paying people smugglers. Okay, thanks Nick. Um, Kenan, just Maybe come back, you might want to come back on a few things, but I, I suppose the two things that I've heard as well from other sources is actually, despite the progressive nature of the, of the pro-immigration position, that it's really just, you know, right-wing free libertarianism in disguise, um, and that really you're just being emotive. On, on that first issue, um, Marine Le Pen is opposed to the European Union. I don't suppose any of the people on the panel who are opposed to the European Union thinks that, therefore, they are taking the same position as Marie Le Pen. People of different political views can uh, often agree on, one, on, on certain political positions. Um, it doesn't mean that you agree with them on all political positions. But what's interesting is that, uh, particularly in John's case, he was arguing against what other people say about freedom of movement, not what the argument I was putting in relation to freedom of movement, nor was he doing what I suggested that he has to do, which is make a moral and political case for the coercion involved in uh, border controls. Um, it seems to me that those who are arguing for border controls are trying to avoid the issue. Anybody who's known me for 
last 20 years will know that uh, I'm the last one to avoid politics or, or to deny democracy. So the argument has to be, can you make a case for border controls and can you make a case for the coercion involved in border controls in the current period? I quite agree with John that, that there is no democratic mandate for freedom of movement. But the fact that there's no democratic mandate doesn't mean that the actual policy is wrong. There's no democratic mandate for uh, free abortion on demand um, at the moment. That doesn't mean that the, the, the issue or the policy of free abortion on demand is wrong, or that those who advocate free abortion on demand are somehow being undemocratic. It's the same with freedom of movement. I fully accept that freedom of movement has no democratic mandate and it cannot be implemented in the current circumstances. All, but what that says is that if one wants to implement freedom of movement, one has to win the argument for it. Similarly, with sovereignty, it is true that within the EU, borders, border controls have been abolished as part of reductions of sovereignties, of the sovereignty of, of, of specific nations. But that doesn't mean that there is an inextricable link between sovereignty and border controls. Sovereignty means that you have control over your borders and you can define what policy you want. For me, in any sovereign nation, I would argue for that policy to be that of freedom of movement. So it seems to me that the arguments being raised are arguments against people who I also would disagree with. I would disagree with much of the argument about freedom of movement in the EU, because the EU doesn't have freedom of movement. We've got this image of the EU as freedom of movement. It's become the kind of poster boy of freedom of movement. But the EU institutes the, the harshest form of coercion to stop people coming into Europe. Seems to me it's a poster boy for lack of freedom of movement. And as I said, if we were, if we were to argue for controls and borders, what we'd really have to argue is for every nation to act in the way that the EU is acting currently. Okay, th thanks, Kent. So, John, the two things that strike me and following on from what Kenan said is, I mean, I, I'm constantly labelled a left-wing libertarian, which I've now stopped arguing with, but, and, and it's fair enough. Um, but that's largely because I agree with freedom. And as somebody who believes in freedom, um, I actually would like to win the arguments for free movement democratically. I have no mandate, that's true. Um, so I want control of the borders so that I can then argue that they're opened, if you see what I mean. So, um, and I might lose the argument, but as an ideal, that would be what I would be arguing, right? So we want control of the borders, and then we want to open them up, and that's because I believe in freedom. So I'm not a right-wing libertarian, and I don't care about the free movement of capital in the way that you indicated, and I understand your points about if you raise these issues, you're called a racist or, you know, and a lot of people try and use emotional blackmail and all the rest of it. However, what's wrong with what I've just said? <laughs> if you see what I mean. Well, Claire, Claire, hopefully when you come back, you'll explain to me why it is you would want to win an argument for free borders because, you, because you've just done what everyone does. You, you assert free borders is good and you must win the argument. And you also know that you haven't won the argument, but you never present the argument. Now, the reason why you well, don't Kenan present the did, argument... Kenan did, to be fair. No, he didn't. I, I, no, he, didn't. he has okay. not presented an argument at all. He, right. he has attacked my position. Now, let me just deal head on with what he says. Look, it is a binary position here. You either have borders or you don't have borders. Kennan does not want borders, right? He is prepared to turn the National Health Service into an international health service. That is politically disastrous. You will never 
get people in a country to contribute to the welfare state so that it can be used for people around the world who are currently surviving on $2 a day. That is the brutal reality. Now, I have no problem engaging in political debate, but please base it on reality. Don't live in some utopian world that doesn't exist. Now, I've been, I've been a well, utopian just, for so long. Let, let, me, let me just deal with this question um, of, of what borders means. You see, I don't have the same problem that Kennan seems to have of being so anti-state. I mean, this is the libertarian coming out here. Anything to do with the state is seen as wrong. I don't agree with that, actually. I think a proper, democratically controlled state is necessary. It is necessary to help the collective govern their society. That's a basic democratic argument. What I do think, however, is that if you have effective border controls, then you need to rely on coercion less because people simply can't get in and unless you choose to let certain people in. So it's not so much for me an issue of coercion. It's a question of having an effective border. Now, I accept that some people will always get in who shouldn't get in, and I believe uh, that they should be removed. It, it's quite simply an argument about the rule of law and the protection of democracy. You either have a law-based society in which people play by the rules, or you don't. And, uh, and if that means sometimes you need to deport people, then so be it. The real problem we have at the moment is that we are promoting the current disastrous situation. Yes, if you feel so guilty about it that you want to send your ships to near the coast of Libya to pick people up and then take them to Italy so that they can live in Western Europe, then fine. But be aware of what you are doing. You are promoting the current system. You are causing people from around the world to pay people smugglers to try and get you into Europe. Okay, great. Now, I know Kenan wants to come back. I know Kenan wants to come back, and I know people want to clap, but let me open up to the floor, and then I'll bring Kenan back first from that, right? Firstly, for Nick, I just had a quick question I hoped he could answer. When you say 17% uh, of uh, asylum seekers were illiterate even in their own language, I find that hard to square with the idea that they pay $10,000. So if, can I quickly have that answered then? Well, quickly, that's not my figures. That's from the Productivity Commission, which is you know, a major Australian government body that just produced a 400-page report on it. So we, and there's been a considerable amount of work done okay. by the Australian government on this. Kenan, you're arguing for open borders based upon, um, or saying that the argument against open borders is based upon uh, fear, effectively. And I'm just wondering um, what you see as the kind of destructive... Uh, impact of that uh, of that fear, you know, precisely how you know is it that much is it that much of a problem? So the kind of the the fear of the other, presumably being some kind of distraction uh, from uh, dealing with uh, with with problems in a genuine way. Um, but you know, I think there is you know I've got some sympathy for uh, John's points here because presumably to to uh, to have a democratic community, that community needs to be uh, circumscribed in some way. You know, they have the 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 the, the borders are, uh, you know, uh, you know, to an extent, you know, kind of real policed physical borders that contain a community, but also um, uh, a community that, um, in some ways, defines it defines itself as, you know, we you know, we are we are British or we are some other nationality, um, and I'm just wondering if actually, you know, the fear of the other, we're kind of, we're kind of getting, uh, we're maybe not on the right track. Okay, thank you. Yes. Hi, Fraser Myers, World Right. Can we first of all just deal with this nonsense about people smugglers? I am able to travel to many parts of the world because I have a British passport. I do not need to smuggle myself there. It's the fact that the borders are closed that causes people to pay people smugglers, that encourages this kind of industry. It's not a product of open borders. It's not a product of compassion in any sense. And, um, you know, I agree very much with, with Keenan on that. I'm completely for freedom of movement. And I think in many ways it's because I believe what John believes about Brit the British and, you know, people who live in the developed world, that we are political actors, that we are deserving of freedom and deserving of freedom of movement to make the lives that we see fit. And that should be the argument for open borders. It shouldn't be based on pity, which I think goes against the idea that people are deserving of freedom. Okay, thank you. Well, I feel the whole argument around kind of people smugglers is a complete deceit to move away from the argument for or against free movement. 
So in terms of the way, you know, Cameron et al. kind of started talking about it, it was to move away from having a moral discussion about what the problems in Africa and Asia and the Middle East are and what the problems with movements or not movements are as well. I mean, if we really want to solve this problem, you know, obviously it's not kind of sending ships over to the North African coast to pick people up, but there's got to be a discussion about what free movement looks like, how we bring these people or don't bring them into our society or how we help them in themselves, you know, build free societies in their own countries. Okay, the elephant in the room here. I mean, libertarianism, this is just a cloak that Keenan uses, and I've run into Keenan. Uh, they had to apologise on air, Channel 4, of a documentary made when I was the immigration whistleblower. The issue is international, Marxist internationalism. Uh, the idea, obviously, is, is that we've, we've, been, uh, we've drawn all the lucky cards, we've got all the money out of capitalism, a lot of the rest of the world hasn't, therefore the idea to equalise things up, have no borders, anywhere can move around. And, of course, the result of that is it completely fucks capitalism for us and destroys the country. That's what the actual uh, argument is, and libertarianism is just a cloak. If nothing else, right. So, you know, you mentioned fear as being a motivation, um, but is it, uh, you know, a sort of preemptive motivation or is it a reactive motivation? And if it is a reactive motivation, is it necessarily a result of fear mongering? Because, as in the case of Sweden, you know, you have people who became fearful after their society changed, and that may be an the irrational sort of tribalistic mindset that we're all, you know, we all fall prey to. But I think that there are some actual practical concerns that must be taken into consideration. It's not really fair to just sweep them aside. And if that, and again, going back to the previous question, you know, what are the implications of having open borders to a given society? And if it is the eradication of the state or what have you, then sure, let's go with it. But let's be honest about it. One thing that hasn't been raised yet is this thing about the practical outcome of the kind of immigration that we've had at the moment, combining with the fear of, for example, terrorism and that sort of thing, and people feeling that integration isn't working, which I know is a big concern for a lot of people. So uh, thank you for raising that at least. Yes. Yeah, 20 years ago, when, you, when people were in favour of migration, they were also in favour of more politics. What's really striking today is that those that favour migrants don't really like citizens. So in discussions about around Brexit, etc., we had discussions about how wonderful uh, 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 Poles were as migrants, but the same, the, those same individuals would be really fearful about uh, uh, Poles as citizens. So we've got this real, uh, uh, around the discussion about migrants, on the one hand, that you've got those that, so, so that the politics around migration has really changed, that uh, uh, it, rather than it representing a, a sh uh, on both sides, what, rather than it re representing an expansion of, of solidarities, what seems to have happened is that you've got those that are in favour of, of migrants don't really like citizens, and those that are citizens are very fearful of migrants. So there seems to be a, 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 a problem here in, in terms of how easy it is today to win the argument about migration. But then you've got this whole whole when it comes to uh, 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 the category of citizens. Okay, thanks. So, okay, so John, you pick anything up. All right, uh, um, people smuggling. Just to say, that the problem with people smuggling is that we have porous borders. In other words, if you pay a smuggler enough money to get in, you will do it. People are prepared to assess what the, it's all very, very well calculated. This people work out what the cost is of finagling your way through a border. The only way to stop that is by controlling it. If you control it, then you will stop the people smugglers. I mean, some people don't like to talk about people smuggling, but it is the reality of so much international migration. And the only way to stop it is by properly controlling your borders. Just on this issue of fear, if you are saying that people's objection to open borders is based on fear, then what actually are you saying about the demos? You're not actually saying much that's good about them, are you? You're saying that they are actually emotionally driven. Their arguments are not based on reason. Well, there's been at least a dozen arguments given so far as to why it is necessary to control borders. There's the NHS. There's the example of Sweden. There's the issue of wage depression. Um, there's the argument of demand on services and so on and so forth. There's the problem of parallel communities. There is no shortage of arguments in favour of controlled borders. I am still waiting to hear an argument in favour of no borders. Okay, Kenan. Firstly, um, the arguments that you put in favour of 
borders, most of them are, you talk about reality, they are unreal. Let's take this idea that um, migration um, depresses wages, um, causes unemployment, um, creates an international health service. This is the um, 2014 LSE Centre for Economic Performance review of the, all the evidence on migration from the EU, open migration from the EU to UK. Empirical research on the market, labour market effects of immigration to the UK finds empirical research on the labour market effects on immigration to the UK finds little overall adverse effect of immigration on wages and employment for the UK born. 2016, they did a similar survey. There is still no evidence of an overall negative impact of immigration on jobs, wages, wages, housing, or the crowding out of public services. That's the reality. You may wish to disagree with the, with the empirical facts, but those are, those are the empirical facts. And when I talk about fear, what I mean is John raising these kinds of issues, which are empirically false, as an argument for border controls. That's what I mean. There are real problems. There are real problems that... There are real problems that many sections of the working class in Britain face. Marginalisation, economic depression, political voicelessness, and so on. None of those problems have been caused by immigration. But immigration has become the symbol of the uh, 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 marginalisation and the voicelessness of sections of the community. That's the problem. The problem is that immigration has become symbolic of the, of, of, of the problems that people face. And the real, real problem with, that, with, that, with, with, with making immigration symbolic of, of those issues is that however tightly you control immigration, you are not going to solve the problem of joblessness of low wages, of industrial decline, of uh, poor housing, because those, those issues lie elsewhere. And by making immigration into the cause of these issues, you're actually making it more difficult to deal with what you think are the issues that should be dealt with uh, uh, with respect to immigration. Okay, thanks, Nick. Well, look, I, I, I was hoping Kenan would say something I could agree with, and he has. So, I mean, that, that's right. I mean, in the Australian case, it is clear that, that, there, there are, that the economic effects of migration are, are probably neutral or possibly positive because people come and they create demand. And one thing about migrants is that they are incredibly driven people, uh, by and large. Uh, but no, no. The, the, the argument here, I think, with Kenan really comes down to this. It's the nature of human rights. Kenan has an idea that human rights is a universal concept which is unconnected with the state. I happen to think, have a more traditional view of you that would have been common, would have been really the, the only view, I think, before about 1970, and that is that human rights belong to the state. And, and what of the human rights, what of the rights of the people who live in a country. If, if, as in Britain's case, something like two-thirds of people think migration is too high, do those people not have a say? Well, I, I, I believe they do. I believe, I'm, I'm a great believer in high migration, in strong migration. They bring marvellous things to a country. But you cannot, you cannot do it without consent. A government cannot do it without consent. And the experience in Australia, and I can only offer that as a guide, the experience in Australia is if people know that you're controlling the borders, i.e. you decide who's coming, people don't select, then you can get, you can, you can have high levels of migration uh, by, by world standards and a very, very happy uh, country with, with, a, with a strong social fabric and relatively little uh, uh, tension, uh, racial tension. That's Australia's experience and I'd recommend it. Okay, Kenan's very eloquently killed my question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm very keen to hear what John has to say. So, John, my original question was, which contemporary social or political issue or problem in the UK is the fault of migrants? Part of the debate on immigration is also to do with the types of communities it creates. And um, successive governments have peddled a very poorly defined notion of diversity and multiculturalism and Britishness. And I think this is confuse the entire narrative on immigration. So on the very far left, people think it's just an aesthetic, that we have to 
impose diversity in all its forms. And I think on the very far right, it's about cultural erosion. So I was going to ask the panel how we can clarify this. Okay. The thing is, freedom of movement is an individual right. You know, individuals have an alienable right to go wherever they want in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that rights violators can cross borders. Countries do have a rights-protecting function, okay? So they can keep out terrorists, criminals, and people carrying communicable diseases because those are rights violators. But everyone else, they have to respect their rights. They have to respect their individual rights. So this is a moral argument. This is a rights-based argument. So, Kenan, you say that immigration is a symbolic issue. And I agree with you, but I, I think it's become symbolic of discussions that we're not allowed to have, discussions that get closed down by use of the word compassion or use of the word fear. I think the whole thing about fear is overstated. Plenty of people I talked to around the Brexit thing thought it was quite uh, fair to say, well, if you're coming to Britain, maybe you should become British. You know, maybe you should take on the nationality. Now, that's a discussion that is closed down. The very closely related issue of uh, national identity, c closely related to immigration, that discussion is closed down. There's only one allowable national identity in Britain, and that's the one of the cosmopolitan elite. That's what we saw through the whole Brexit discussion. Any other discussion, you're branded as a racist. So it is symbolic, but it's symbolic of closing down discussion and not allowing people to, to have that debate. I'd like to hear from John in particular what he thinks would be a case for open borders because he keeps asking for it. And I'd like to advance what I think my principle would be, which is that you either treat people as a means to an end or you treat people as an end in themselves. And what that would mean in terms of borders is either borders uh, control us or we control borders. So, you know, it's a principle. Either people are free or they're not. We had the referendum. I'm wondering whether, uh, if we're looking at wanting to widen public debate about this, that we should adopt the Swiss model of direct democracy. Uh, in February 2014, they had a, a, a referendum vote about mass immigration, where they said they, well, it was a very slim majority of only 19,500 people who, uh, which voted to say they wanted to reintroduce uh, immigration quotas, uh, and uh, it was a vote against mass immigration. So I'd like to know what the panel thinks of uh, the Swiss model, perhaps, in this context. Isn't, isn't the intellectual argument for open borders that people are tribal, um, and that causes all sorts of problems uh, in terms of their um, separation uh, and wars. Uh, and the nation state, um, the bordered nation state, is a um, uh, representation of that tribalism uh, on a larger scale, which may lead to um, destructive consequences for the whole world. So it's therefore an attempt to, um, uh, to negate our uh, nat natural, natural tendencies. My son's attitude is revealing. He's 19, just starting off in life, and is opposed to open borders. Not because he's scared of migrants or because he's got a you know, fear of uh, the unknown. I hope I brought him up reasonably well. But he is opposed to having to compete with, as he sees it, a large number of actually very well qualified people who may come from abroad and basically outcompete him for the starting jobs, the accommodation and the training opportunities which are available to him as a British citizen. Since we're talking about children, I'll mention my two 16-year-olds. They were born in 2000. In uh, July of that year, I went along to the uh, passport office and I asked for two passports and they said, well, actually, you need to go to the visa office in Croydon. I said, I don't understand that. I said, well, you weren't born in this country. So your children who were born in Slough need to go to the visa office because you need to leave the country or you have to have the visa. I argued with that and after a very large meeting of lots of people involved from Hong Kong and Africa and some disruption to their proceedings, they took me to one side and they said, this law wasn't made for people like you. And I was taken into an office, they changed all the information I provided and I got two passports for my children. I'm not going to tell you my name because I wouldn't want to get their, their passports revoked. You know, we're having a discussion here about immigration as if it's some sort of technical issue where an even-handed government has some technical things that it has to resolve, and maybe there are some people in the population who are slightly scared, and the government is trying to maintain some kind of balance. No one's demonstrated that immigrants are bad for society or for working people in this country. My children are very much for the right of immigration, and I'm for the right of immigration, not as a general principle universal, but because I deny the right of this state, of our national this, this country here, not the EU, 
But the British state that created the laws that in 2000 would have made my children have to leave this country. I don't blame the EU, I blame the, the, the British state. And even after we leave Europe, we still have to deal with the British state. And immigration isn't a technical matter of being even-handed and figuring out some solution. It's about denying the right of our state to divide us and make us afraid of each other. I mean, for me, it's a matter of numbers. I've got no problem with 100,000 coming in. I've got a problem with 100 million coming in. Uh, but nobody seems to address the issue of, of numbers. Certainly not the, the open, those who, who are in favour of open borders. Mr Holbrook, I, I can see where you're, where you're coming from, but, I mean, if you argue for democracy, you would normally not argue technically. You would bring it forth as a moral issue. You'd say freedom is good, citizens are rational, they can exercise their freedom, that's why we should have democracy. You would bring a Kantian argument into the picture. Now, I don't see why you, Mr. Holbrook, fail to see freedom of movement as part of the struggle for freedom. Why do you not see that as a fundamental human right? And I would like to hear from Ken Malik why he thinks it is a human right. I haven't heard enough reasons here. It's just a question around assimilation, which as much as there are concerns around the impact of immigration upon people's jobs, there's also concerns around the fact that in certain areas there are 80% of, for example, classrooms where people don't speak English as a first language. Um, and there are real cultural barriers that people are coming up against, which up until very recently, you know, people would be discussed as bigoted women uh, and, or otherwise if, if they voiced those concerns. So, I mean, I don't think that's fear, as Kenan puts it. I think they are, they are real obstacles that we need to consider and, uh, and discuss. Actually, one thing I wanted to say was, where I live in London, there's hardly any white British people who live there. It's largely immigrant area. Um, those people are very opposed to the new wave of immigration. So it's complicated. I mean, a lot of the earlier waves of immigration think that the Poles are moving in and keep, you know, I'm, I, you know and they're not, they are... So it's, it's an interesting dilemma that's changed in terms of that debate certainly in my lifetime. Yeah, anyway, right, you, sir. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, everyone. I've worked on border control projects at the external border of the European Union, particularly in the Baltic states, where the right to protect your border is not just about migration. It's about a big, nasty organization across the border. And I hope those who favor uh, open borders respect that right. My question is, what would those who defend open borders in all circumstances, in all circumstances, so everything's qualified in my view, um, what would they say um, in support of that to Mexicans? Mexico on independence offered open borders and within 15 years it had lost Texas. Thank you. Thank you. I'd just like to ask Mr. Malik, are you particular about who you let into your house? <laughs> because if you are, what's wrong with a bunch of people being particular about who they let into that country? What's so unreasonable about that? And when you make the argument about coercion's the problem, haven't you just sort of like put one side of a coin forward? That's a little bit like saying, well, all right, burglary's probably bad, but I don't really want the police to arrest burglars. You, you, you've, you've, you've only given one side of the picture there, so how do you address the, that other side of it? Yeah, John, I'm sorry, sorry the other two, but John seems to be getting a lot of the attention here. John, I'm, I'm fascinated by your idea of considering borders in any terms at all, um, in terms of some kind of political and economic architecture or whatever, but that made me think borders have, in themselves have been transitory. You can almost say, in old terms, borders are, could possibly be the product of some form of late capitalism or something like that. I don't know if they exist, how they existed before. But anyway, my point is that you're, what you're arguing, the thing that concerns me about it is I don't see any kind of future orientation in there. It feels like you're arguing the borders are fixed and there's no... I don't see any progression. I don't see any movement of those borders or possibly I've just misunderstood it. So I'd be interested to see if you have any future orientation in, in your worldview.
The panel talked a lot about perceptions to um, democracy earlier, and we've had a lot of political emphasis recently on uh, devolution and regional democracy. So I'm wondering whether, in light of regional divides around Brexit, um, regional sovereignty on um, immigration is possible. I think it works in other countries um, sporadically, where you can, if you agree to live, work, and stay in a particular area, then that that, that locality can decide. And if that's a load of rubbish, then what other pra- practical insights can you suggest? Nick, give us your final thoughts. Well, I think on the question of national identity, that is important. I am a huge, huge fan of Britain. I believe that the cultures and tradition of Britain from the Magna Carta onwards have made this country the free and liberal place it is. And Australia has been in the very fortunate position, I think, of benefiting from that, as, as has Canada uh, uh, United States, New Zealand, much of the Anglosphere. It is a unique and special place. You are a great uh, people, I believe. I believe that uh, Britain is a very tolerant place. I certainly don't recognise this fear argument at all when I talk to ordinary people here about migration. But I think it's very important not to get caught up in some of these quite loopy and bizarre arguments that have taken hold since about 1970 and to stick to, to I think, the tried and tra- tra- the, the principles of citizenship uh, and, and liberty which make this country such a wonderful place. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, someone asked, would I allow um, anybody into my house? Um, why would I want to allow anybody into, into the country? Well, there's a difference between an individual living in a private sphere and a demos in a nation. And we do lots of things as a demos, as a nation, that I wouldn't want to do in my house. And there's lots of things I do in my house that I wouldn't want my nation to do. <laughs> and so, so this idea of confusing... <laughs> This, kind, this idea, we should not confuse the privacy, what one does in the privacy of one's home, with what the political argument, the political stances we take in relation to our nation. Secondly, Nick said that I, I imagine human rights to be unconnected to the state. John said uh, that uh, I'm anti-state, I'm opposed to everything the state does. I'm not. I think the state has a very important uh, and significant place in society. But that doesn't mean that I support everything the state does, and it doesn't mean that I support, in particular, the coercive actions of the state. It seems to me this this is what's missing here. What we're talking about are coercive actions of the state. And for a coercive state to have, co- to, to, to have legitimacy for its coercive actions, um, uh, they must be justified in moral and political terms. And so far, I mean, John talked about its right to deport a few people. Well, we're not talking about deporting a few people. We are talking about a global system of detention centres to keep people out of Europe. Detention centres in Turkey. What, what was the Turkey deal? The Turkey deal was that Europe would deport back to Turkey all those non-Syrians who come from Turkey uh, to, to Europe. They would presumably, but they will be, in detention camps in Turkey. So we have to, uh, we have to um, morally and politically justify a worldwide system of detention and deportation that's the coercion I'm talking about. Why do I believe in freedom of movement? Well, I should be able to walk from here to the end of the room without anybody stopping me. I should be able to walk, travel from London to Manchester without anybody stopping me. What about from London to Washington? Two different nations. But in order for someone to, to be able to argue that that is fundamentally different in terms of my freedom and freedom of movement. You have to make a very strong case, or make, make any case at all, for why travelling from London to Washington is, is, is so different from travelling from London to Manchester. The case is that these are two different nations, we should have control of the borders. I agree. I'm not arguing 
that we shouldn't have control over borders. I'm not saying that the fact that the majority of Britons don't want open borders means that we should ignore what they say. I very specifically said we should accept the democratic mandate. And therefore, there can be no open borders without popular support for it. Just some work in, in, in practice, if, if nothing else, but there's a matter of principle. But what's important is that in a sovereign democratic state, there needs to be an argument made, a moral and political argument, as to why someone should not be able to cross the border of that state without the state defining who that is. My view is that anybody should be able to be free to walk from X to Y. And I think that those who argue for restrictions on freedom of movement may make an argument about sovereignty, may make an argument about democracy, may make an argument about the practical consequences, about numbers. But none of those arguments are valid. They're not valid because free movement is separate from discussions about democracy, is separate from discussions of sovereignty, and where we have had practical, we have had practical uh, cases of open borders, millions have walked in. They have worked very well. It's closing borders that creates the problems. I've counted three arguments in favour of open borders. The first is the emotional narrative, which hasn't been pressed very strongly, but I think Kennan's repeated references to detention centres is an attempt to key into that emotional narrative. Um, it doesn't wash with me. I readily accept that if you are going to have borders, then you will need institutions that protect those borders, and that will mean some detention centres and some removals. But that is a price that always needs to be paid for any collective right that is worth having. And the alternative is just disastrous. The second argument is not so much an argument in favour of open borders, it's more a criticism of my argument, which is to rely on experts. A little bit like Michael Gove, I am tired of experts telling me and everyone else who is a thinking, rational human being what they should think and how they should conclude an argument. On this issue of wage compression, I do not need experts, whether they are from LSE or anywhere else, to tell me what the impact of large numbers of immigrants coming into the country is. It is obvious that if you have a lot of people coming in from countries where they are prepared to work for low wages, then you will get wage compression. The alternative which I favour would be to have controlled borders so that wages would either increase or productivity levels would increase. And that is what would happen if we were able to control our borders. Now, on the third argument, and this in reality is what open borders always boils down to. It's been put slightly differently by various people, but it is essentially a libertarian argument. It is the argument that's been heated up for the 21st century in terms of being put, put in terms of human rights. But it is essentially this argument that people have an individual right to travel. People have an individual right to decide where they live. Now, I have two problems with that argument. The first is actually it's not an argument. It's an assertion. I mean, you do what human rights people always do. You assert the very thing that you need to convince people of. So you're really just stating your conclusion. But the second problem I have with it is that it is, it is actually an assertion of individual rights as trumping the rights of the collective. 
that is a very prevalent narrative, and it is a problem for our society. Because actually, if you believe in politics and democracy, as I do, then you have to be able to decide where the collective interest is and where the balance between the individual and the collective should be drawn. And that means, if the people so decide, that you will need to control your borders. And so I don't accept that this assertion of individual rights is a way of winning the argument. Thank you.